Please turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, when I was a kid, I, um, I could not hide what I was thinking from my parents. And uh, fortunately, my kids can't hide from me either. Uh, particularly my son, when he's trying to pull something over on me, he begins his story, and he's partway into the story, and one corner of his mouth just kind of starts to curl up, and, you know, and I just sit there and listen. Apparently, he can see what's going on in my mind as well, because he'll stop and go, what, what? And I'll say, nothing. Just keep telling your lie. <laughs> can you imagine, if you woke up in the morning and you looked up into heaven and you could see the face of God? Of course, he could look down and he could see what you were thinking. Nothing you could hide from him. He's the father and we're his children. But as you looked up into his face, what would his face be telling you? What would you see in the face of God? Would you see disappointment, anger, frustration? Would you see care, compassion, concern? We've been talking about the doctrine of justification. It's a, it's a legal word. It's a, it's a judicial act by which God says you are in right relationship with me. You're in the right I'm the judge now in the eyes of the court. You have been set right because you have believed in Jesus Christ. It's a judicial declaration, but does it have any practical effect on our relationship with God? Does it at all change the nature of our relationship with God, or is it just a judicial declaration? Well, in Romans chapter 5, Paul is going to tell us that this declaration that God has made that we are right in God's sight, that we are in right relationship with him, changes everything about our actual relationship with him. I want you to read with me in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, therefore, and we should stop right there. Okay, that is a huge therefore. That therefore is wrapping up all of chapters 1 through 4. Paul's saying, based upon what I've told you in Romans chapter 1 through 4, therefore. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult or we boast in hope of the glory of God. Notice in chapter 5, he moves from judicial language, legal language, to relational language. Notice he moves from the past tense, passive voice, having been justified. Present tense, we have peace with God. Paul is going to tell us there are two primary uh, benefits or results or blessings from justification that he's going to expound in these 11 verses. The first is this, we have permanent peace with God. Having been justified, now we have peace with God. What does he mean by peace? Well, peace is an interesting word. Uh, in Greek and Hebrew, uh, the concept is basically twofold. The first is what we would normally think of the cessation of hostilities, The end of conflict and enmity or warfare. As I watch that video about the Muslim world, about the Middle East, one thing does not come into my mind, and that is peace. The the world in which the Muslims live in the Middle East, it's a world of conflict. There's longing within them, and it's not normally longing like we have in the American dream to get rich and live comfortably. It's just that the bombs would stop and the bullets would stop. 
that there would just be an end of hostilities. Isn't it ironic that the city Jerusalem, which is claimed by both Jews and Muslims, the city Jerusalem, the name means city of peace. But there is no peace. There's conflict. Notice the way in which Paul describes us in this passage. It's a progression. He starts with this. He says, first of all, we were helpless. It means we could do nothing on our own to reconcile our relationship with God, to end the warfare and the enmity. There was nothing we could do. Second, he says, uh, we were ungodly. That is, we had violated the nature of of God and his personality, his attributes. Third, we're sinners. We violated the law of God and that we were enemies. Read with me in chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were helpless. We were estranged from God. We were ungodly. We were sinners violating his law and his nature. We were enmities. We were at war with God. And in the midst of that helpless state, we're told, God intervened on our behalf. Verse 6, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At exactly the right moment when we were helpless and ungodly and alienated and actually at warfare with God, and God was at war with us, Christ intervened and died on our behalf. Died literally in our place. That's the concept of propitiation that we were looking at a couple weeks ago. God must in his holiness pour out discipline or judgment upon sin. That's the wrath of God. But in Jesus Christ, he has taken God's wrath that was deserved by us, but poured out in Christ. And so he stands as our substitute. Why in the world would Jesus do that? Verse seven again, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were enemies of God, that's when Christ died. And Paul says, you know, we can contemplate someone dying for a righteous man, maybe, or perhaps a good man, but one who's actually an enemy? Paul says that's the nature of the love of God. It's hard for us to even contemplate because we don't love like that. We don't love like that. I want you to keep your place here in Romans 5. Turn back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus is telling his listeners, if you would like to be like God, he says specifically, you want to be sons and daughters. You want to reflect the family name. This is what it means. This is what it looks like. Chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love the one who is uh, literally nearby as the neighbor. And the Jews were constantly trying to restrict that definition of neighbor. The people who are in my family, the people that I love, the people that I like. Let's keep neighbor very narrow. He says, you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that you may reflect the family name. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect or whole or complete or mature, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the character of God. This is the way God loves. It's not the way that the world loves. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, helpless, ungodly, enemies, then Christ died for us. Why? The ultimate demonstration of the love of God to reconcile us to him. Hey, reconciliation is an enormously important theological concept for Paul. Justification is a legal term. Redemption is an economic term. Reconciliation is a relational term. It means this, to bring together or to make peace between two estranged or hostile parties. Verse 10, Romans chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received the reconciliation. That is, God has put us back in right relationship. He's removed the warfare between us. So now we are called not enemies of God. We are called the friends of God. And in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this. Colossians chapter 1, excuse me. Although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. You were alienated and you were hostile in your mind, but you were also engaged in evil deeds. You were an enemy of God. And yet Jesus Christ, in his blood, in his body, took the wrath of God so that you could be made the friend of God. And now you stand at peace with God. Reconciled. We have been reconciled to God. Cessation of hostilities. You know, when Martin Luther was uh, a monk, before he really understood the gospel message, he used to go into the confessional and he would stay there for six hours. He would keep his priest wrapped up for six hours, just dealing with his stuff. Drove his priest crazy. You know, for six hours he would sit there on the hard wooden bench and he would rack his mind for every deed that he had done, but also every word that he had spoken, every thought that might have come into his, his mind, or every motivation that might have offended God. Because when Martin Luther woke up in the morning and he imagined looking into heaven, he saw the face of God and it was that of an enemy. He saw God as an enemy, they were at war. And he needed to confess every minute detail of a possible sin to remove any cause that God might have to hate him. And then at one point in his spiritual journey, as he was meditating upon Romans and Galatians, he finally realized, no, life with God is a gift. And because of the work of Christ, God can look upon me and he can see Christ in my place and he can smile upon me because I'm not his enemy any longer. We are now friends. We are at peace. That's the first component of peace. The second is this. Negatively, it's the cessation of hostilities. Positively, it is the enjoyment of blessings. It's the enjoyment of blessing. 
This is consistent with the, the Hebrew concept of peace. It's shalom. Shalom. Uh, when a uh, Jew meets another Jew or an Arab meets another Arab, they say to one another, peace. The Jew says, shalom alecha. The Arab says, asalem alecha. Peace be to you and peace be to you as well. They're not saying howdy. Okay? Uh, it, it's a little more profound than that. It means, may the riches of God's blessing be upon you. Okay? May your life be full and complete. May there be a harmony in your relationships. Hey, that's what peace means. Shalom means blessing. It means harmony. May you be in harmony with all those around you. May you be in harmony with God. May all of your world fit together and may you experience the blessings of God. Shalom. Asalam. Okay, fullness of the blessings of God. Now, that's what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. It was shalom. It was shalom. Adam and Eve were at harmony with one another. No conflict in their marriage. Ever. At all. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine? Probably not. Perfect peace, harmony, always. Perfect peace and harmony with God. They walked with God in the cool of the garden every day and they just enjoyed one another. They enjoyed the face of God. Never even wondered in their mind, how has God turned toward me? What is his disposition toward me? It was one of grace, blessing, fullness. Harmony with the earth that they had been created to oversee on behalf of God. They would plant things and it would grow up and no weeds would be there. And then sin came and what happened? Thorns and thistles from the ground, and it was hard work, and it was agony, it was unfulfilling. Conflict, disharmony in their relationship with one another. Conflict in their relationship with God. Alienation, enmity, strife. They had children, and they had conflict with their kids. And their kids had kids, and they had conflict with one another. And the great theme of the Bible is that we are being restored to the garden, to shalom. The fullness of the blessing of God, walking with God in his presence with no alienation between us and one another or between us and God. That's what the prophets looked forward to when they thought about the kingdom of God. It's a restoration to this life of blessing in the garden. Let me read to you from Ezekiel chapter 34. This is God speaking. He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And I will eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods, anywhere. There will be blessing. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. It will be a place of shalom. All the earth will be restored to harmony and blessing. Book of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote this. He said, the fruit of righteousness will be shalom. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. The enjoyment of blessings in the presence of God, peace and harmony. How is it possible? Chapter 5, verse 2. Paul says, Through our Lord Jesus Christ we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says we have access now into the presence of God. We have access. And we didn't have access before, but now we have access into the grace 
and blessing of God. Uh, I have a really good friend who he's a pastor down in Houston of a big church, and um, he gets access to sporting events. Uh, he has some folks in his church, and they get tickets, and they get good tickets. Whenever I go to a game with him, we sit in good seats. Uh, I remember went to an Astros game one time, and we were behind the visiting team's bench, uh, their dugout. Literally, we had our feet on their dugout, you know, and the guys came out, and they tossed balls to our kids, and it was really cool, but that wasn't the best. The best time was the first time I went to an Astros game with him, and we sat in the Diamond Club. Anybody know what the Diamond Club is? Yeah, you might not, because I got online and the tickets are 375 bucks a piece. I didn't pay anything for them, but we were in the Diamond Club. Okay, here's how the Diamond Club works. You got a parking pass, so you drive up close. And you get in and you go into uh, underneath uh, Minute Maid Field and uh, you go into a restaurant first. It's a small restaurant, but you go in and because you've got a ticket, you just start eating. You don't pay anything. You know, you want uh, the best hot dogs on the planet because it's a ballpark, right? But you can also get nachos and some sandwiches and Cokes and anything you want to drink. And then uh, one of the waiters comes around and says, the game's about to start. So you, go, you, know, you make your way into your Diamond Club seat, which is uh, you go down and you're, you're right behind home plate. You're like right almost on the field. And if you didn't get to eat enough, you go, I'd like another hot dog here, you know, and they just bring you your food and they bring you your Coke and you eat half of it and you're done. And then you get another one. And I mean, it's just, it's awesome. It's amazing. I was sitting next to my friend. He goes, look, look, he goes there three rows down. That's Drake McLean. That's the owner of the Astros. I'm sitting next to Drake McLean. I got access because my friend provided me access. And I thought this is the way I was designed to live. (laughs) I should go to every sporting event like this. Okay, that's just kind of a silly little illustration of what Paul's talking about. He's saying we have access not to the diamond club, but to the throne room of God. Okay? We have access into this grace. It's as if the throne room is the room of grace, which is closely related to peace. It is the favor of God, the blessing of God, unmerited, undeserved. It's just a gift. And we have our introduction by faith, our way in to this grace in which we stand. We have access to God and we didn't have access before. Writer to the Hebrews said this, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we can go immediately into his presence. Why? Because Jesus Christ says we can. The imagery behind this description in Paul is the ancient Near Eastern throne room. Remember the book of Esther. Esther wants to come into the presence of the king. She's the wife of the king, but she can't just rush in, can she? The king has to extend his scepter. He has to say, you have access. You are welcomed in. And if someone rushes in and the scepter has not been extended, what happens? They're put to death. They're put to death. But if the scepter is extended, they can come in and they can plead their case. Paul is saying, God has extended the scepter to us. Why? Because his son Jesus is sitting beside him and he's saying, that one belongs to me. Father, I purchased that one for your family. That is your son. That is your daughter. That is my brother. That is my sister. 
And God, the heavenly father, the king of the universe extends his scepter and says, please come in with confidence into the very throne room of grace. Find grace and mercy to help in time of need because you are family. You know, when Drake McLean's kids want to go to a game, they don't sit in the cheap seats. They sit in the diamond club because they are family, right? And you are family. This is the metaphor for salvation. And so few Christians understand the metaphor salvation is family. God is your father. And so when you look into your face, you see a perfect, loving, heavenly father. And his face toward you is the face of grace, unmerited favor and blessing, even when you sin. (laughs) Even when you sin. Now, believe it or not, my kids sin once in a while. I know it's crazy. You say, pastor's kids sin? Yeah, they do. You know, uh, the, the math teacher's sin doesn't get 100% on every calculus test. The pastor's kids sin. My kids sin once in a while. And you know, when they sin, does it frustrate me? Yeah. It frustrates me because there is, there's a disharmony. We're not enjoying the relationship. It does not end the relationship. When my children sin, I don't say, you know what? You can't be a fisher any longer. You're going to go down and live with evil Mrs. Smith down the road. It's a terrible house, but that's, you're going to be a smith now. You can't be a fisher now. You have forfeited the family name. I do not say that. In fact, when there's a rupture in that relationship, I want harmony even more than they want harmony. If you're only a child and you don't have your own kids yet, you may not understand that. But as a parent, you want the restoration of intimacy and fellowship even more than your children. But nothing can break that bond of family. Even if my kids say to me, I want to be a Smith. I don't care. You're not. You're not. You are a fisher. And you belong to me. That's why Jesus told that story of the prodigal son. It was the father who was looking and waiting and longing day after day after day after day while the child was off making stupid decisions. And when the father saw the son on the horizon, he ran and he embraced that son because it was family. That's what the grace of God means. Cessation of hostilities and the enjoyment of blessings because we have access Through Jesus Christ. But that's not all. Second, we get enduring hope. Enduring hope. Read with me again chapter 5 and verse 2. Through Jesus Christ we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult or we boast in hope of the glory of God. What is our boast now? That we deserve to be in the presence of God? No, we boast in the hope of God of the glory of God. Uh, What is hope? Hope is confident expectation. Hope is not the way we use the word on a daily basis in our lives. It's not wishful thinking. It's not based on a a probability that may be higher, low. It's confidence. It's a confident expectation. Uh, Some of you college guys, you are hoping that you're going to get a date this week. It's just wishful thinking. Uh, And I know that. You know how I know that? It's wishful thinking. It's because if you don't ask, it'll never happen, right? It's like playing the lottery. The odds aren't good, but you got to play, right? You got to buy a ticket, okay? So that's a totally different talk. But you get the difference, right? Wishful thinking versus 
confident expectation it's going to happen. I believe it. Uh, it's a little bit more like the, the uh, engagement period. Right? In the engagement period, uh, it's, it can be hard. You're challenged. You're waiting. You're waiting. You're waiting. It's challenging. And you get some of the benefits of being married, but not all of them. You're hopeful, though. And so what do engaged people do? They walk around with a smile on their face all the time because they're hopeful, right? Confident expectation. She said, yes, there's a ring on her finger. I have evidence of things hoped for. Conviction of things not seen. It's going to happen, I believe, right? That's hope. Oh, but guys, you can't get engaged if you never get a date. And you can't get a date if you don't ask. So tied that all together, right? Okay, okay. Hope, there it is, okay? Confident expectation in three things, Paul says. First, I have confident expectation in a future glory. Notice, verse five, verse two, excuse me. We boast in hope of the glory of God. I I love the finer points of grammar uh, in the Bible, but I also love the big picture. And if there's a single word that encapsulates the theme of the Bible, it's this word, glory. God is glorious. He is perfect and whole and complete in all that he is and all that he does, all that he thinks, all that he feels. God is glorious. His name deserves to be honored and respected or glorified. God's glorious. That's the big theme of the Bible, that we have violated that glory, or as Paul says in 3.23, all have sinned and fall short constantly of the glory of God, the perfect standard of God. But we were made in his image to reflect his glory and his likeness. And so God is in this process of restoring us to glory. And what do we have hope in? We have hope that God will complete the process. We believe God will complete the process. Why? Because we have been justified. And so we have hope that we will be glorified. Philippians chapter 3. Apostle Paul wrote, Our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, uh, that's where we belong. That's our ultimate home. is life in the presence of God. From which also we eagerly wait. That's hope. We're waiting for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he comes, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Christ is so powerful that his justification will work from the beginning all the way to the end. Bank on it. Hope on it. Not wishful thinking, but confident expectation. Turn to the end of chapter 8 in Romans in verse 30. Actually, verse 29, let's start there. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. We will get into this more when we hit chapter 8, but notice glorified is in the past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet. That's because it is so certain to happen that Paul writes as if it's already happened. God will complete our salvation. God will complete our salvation. And so we have hope in future glory. Second, we have hope in future deliverance. Chapter 5, verse 9. He says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, past tense, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. 
God is absolutely and perfectly holy and righteous. He is just in all of his ways. And so all sin must be punished and the wages of sin is death. The life of the one who has sinned must be taken. But in Christ, God has poured out his wrath that was deserved by us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that we could be put in right relationship with God through him. Even though we deserved to remain aliens and strangers and enemies of God, he poured out his wrath on Christ as our substitute. And so someday every person will stand before God. And the question will simply be, did each and every person allow Christ to be the substitute for their sins, to to let God's wrath for their own sins fall on Christ, or will they bear the weight themselves? If you have never said, God, thank you that you gave Christ to bear the weight of my sin, then you remain under the wrath of God now, and when you stand before God, the wages of your sin will be death. That is separation from God. The reason Christ came was to remove that fear and give you hope. That life will last forever for you in the presence of the fullness of God's grace and blessing. But at some time in your life, you've got to say, God, I believe. God, I believe that Christ paid for my sin. Thank you that your wrath that should have been for me was poured out on him. I accept. C.S. Lewis once wrote a a short article. It's called uh, The Weight of Glory. Maybe one of my, my favorite short article. In it, he said this toward the end of the article. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. That is, they have an ending point. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Short. Starts, it ends. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Everyone from the moment that they are created will endure forever. In the presence of God or outside of the presence of God, believers in Jesus Christ, do you have hope today? Then you have something to give. We should look around at the people around us. And not just the ones in our family or our friends, the people we like. But Jesus said, do you want to be sons and daughters of the Most High? This is how he loves. He loves even those who are enemies. Even those who who abuse his gifts and his grace. He reaches out in love and he sacrifices. Why? To give them hope. And that is why, church, that he has left us on this planet. So that as his sons and daughters, we would reflect the family name by loving And by reaching out and offering hope to those who are without God and consequently without hope in the world. And that should bring urgency to our lives and our message. Every year, our our global impact team puts together a week of events to stir you up. To stir you up to think about God's love for those who are out there. And hopefully in getting stirred up for those who are out there, you'll be stirred up for those who may be in your own home, your own family, your neighborhood, sitting next to you at your work, that are without God and without hope in the world. And that all of us, as we're stirred up, would begin to uh, have the heart of God. We would look at others around us and we would say, does that one know Christ? Does that one have hope? The most important thing about every person that you meet is, do they know Christ? 
Or do they not know Christ? Believers in Christ, we have hope. Paul says, remarkably, it's not just hope in the future that we'll share glory and we'll avoid wrath, but we even have hope right now because if we know our eternal destiny is secure, then we've got meaning for everything that we experience here in life. Even in the midst of the things that we suffer, there's meaning, there's purpose. Look at the progression of what Paul says here. Chapter 5, verse 3. He says, not only this, not only do we boast in future glory, but we also boast in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint. God will not let you down because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Follow the imagery here, what Paul is saying. He's saying, because your future is guaranteed, you boast in that. You don't boast in the fact that you have any merit on your own. You boast in the fact of what Christ has done and guaranteed for you. And because your future is guaranteed, you have meaning in the present. So you can even boast when you are suffering. And the word he uses for for suffering here, tribulations, is literally uh, the word pressure. A tribulation is a pressure. He says, we boast in our pressures. Why? Because pressures bring about perseverance. The word perseverance means to remain under. You see the image? Things are pressing down upon you, and what do we want to do? Get out. And he says, but you stay under the pressure. And when you stay under that pressure that God has brought, what does God do? He creates character. Okay, proven character. Gold refined by fire, value. He changes who you are so that you become like Christ. People look at you and they say, that's what God is like. Because as the pressure came, you remained under and you allowed it to squeeze and squeezed out all of the bad stuff. And what remained was character. And character brings hope. A confident expectation that we belong to God. So as you wake up tomorrow morning and you open your eyes and you imagine you're looking into the presence of God. And it's a throne room, not of condemnation. But what do you see on God's face? You see God's grace. You see his undeserved favor, his shalom, his peace, his blessing. Even when we sin and fail, our Heavenly Father looks down upon us and says, I want what's best for you. And you have access into my presence. Come with confidence into the throne room of God to receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. That is the face that you see because you're part of the family of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have purchased us for your family through the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you that you willingly went to the cross on our behalf. And Father, I pray that we would boast in nothing else, but that we understand and we know you. And that we know that Christ has died for us. And I pray, Father, that you would cause our hearts to turn in compassion, even toward our enemies, and that we would extend grace and mercy to them. Father, I pray that you would stir us up as a church to to love and honor you and appreciate your grace and to extend it to others. It's in Christ's very powerful name we pray. Amen. Shalom. God's blessings upon you. Have a great day.